Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time for science and skepticism. So yeah, um, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. And so I'd like to start out tonight by giving a shout out to a Twitter user who goes by the handle Just Say In Mice. Now, this is a person really close to my heart. Uh, <laughs> this is um, very exciting, even though it started off as kind of a um, kind of a lark, but it it shows something that's very important. And so uh, the account was begun on April 12th by James Heathers, who is an Australian and a research scientist at Northeastern University's Corey College of Computer Sciences. And um, so he does uh, data analysis research. And so the concept and execution is very simple. Heathers was fed up with bad science reporting, uh, as opposed to science journalism, in which many stories are framed as breakthroughs or important. But when you actually look at the studies or, you know, get to the very bottom of the article about these studies, you find that they were conducted in either mice or rats or Drosophila fruit flies or even just in cell lines. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of these are even done just in vitro, which often means literally just cells in a Petri dish. And so, you know, there are also a number of other important research animals, but they are distinctly not humans. And so, um, yeah, he was really frustrated by this. So he started pointing them out using this Twitter handle that says, that, you know, points out, just say in mice. And of course, he meant mice as a general um, sort of rubric for all of these things that are not in humans. Uh, Heathers has actually been quite shocked by the popularity of the account. Um, and uh, it he seems like a very, uh, you know, a very funny guy, um, clearly has a good sense of humor. Uh, he wrote a, um, he wrote an explanation. And one of the things he said was that he was very disappointed that it's gotten so big because people keep trying to point out his, uh, you know, even his little um, jest of putting a lab rat rather than a mouse as the profile picture. Um, and so people have been continually pointing that out to him. Um, and so, yeah, he basically seriously underestimated the interest in this endeavor, which I actually think is, you know, for my uh, point of view is great because it means that there is a real interest in this sort of uh, calling out of bad science reporting, bad science behavior um, of news outlets that don't have the ability, don't seem to have the ability to report in a way that isn't hyperbolic, that isn't overselling the research. And, you know, it's not... It's not entirely their fault. For one thing, we know that the person who writes an article almost certainly almost never writes the 
uh, headline and, you know, headlines are always the worst. Um, you know, there's a reason for the use of the word clickbait. Um, and, you know, they definitely want to lead with something that is really good and interesting, but, you know, this is not, um, this is not the best way to do this if you actually want to disseminate knowledge. And so even though, you know, this started out as kind of a jest, it's actually a quite serious uh, endeavor, one that is being pursued, that even though it's being pursued in what uh, one detractor noted as a, quote, lame and lazy way, uh, Heather's actually agreed with that point. But he also pointed out that a big part of this is that it's accessible. And so I think that that's really important too, is that part of it is that he wanted people to just be able to know about this sort of stuff without having to complicate it with a bunch of, you know, big, important sounding, uh, you know, scientific jargon. He wanted to just say, just say in mice. <laughs> uh, and so he writes in a piece on Medium, I think reporting on scientific research accurately, especially when it's about health and medicines, medical science is important. It often means telling people crucial, scary, or important things from a position of authority. So I don't think you should wait until the third paragraph before mentioning that the research on your diet or the tumor that's going to kill you or the latest new threat is mouse research or worse, not mentioned it at all. The difference is crucial because usually it means we're talking about upgrading a piece of research from the preclinical research stage to the clinical trial stage. The preclinical research stage is what we're often presented with and leads me to often note, I'm sorry, the clinical research stage is uh, what we're often presented with. So that's what a lot of these um, uh a lot of these uh, stories end up being about. And, you know, that often leads me, me as uh, your, your, uh, <laughs> your host of uh, evidence-based radio to note several times over whenever I mention one of these reports uh, that this is in mice or something like that, um, and that it won't necessarily lead to human impact. And so, yeah, that is, you know, preclinical trials are generally in mice. That's generally what the stage is. Um, and so I even, you know, skip over a lot of these stories uh, because they're so fraught with maybes and some days and possiblys and, you know, all of those words that tell you that they're nowhere near to making this into something real. And uh, so Heathers notes that this phase is, quote, a billion dollars and a decade short of becoming a drug, if it even makes it that far, which is unlikely. And that is pretty much very true. Um, and so, yeah. And again, he does mention that usually somewhere towards the end of the actual article, uh, the species of test subject is mentioned. But we all know that most of us don't get to paragraph six or more in an article. Most people just read the headline and maybe the first paragraph or two before moving on. And so it's really important that these things aren't being oversold because, as Heathers also pointed out very 
uh, astutely, that this brings up another huge issue. And the way that he describes it is this, little by little, overinflated results and breathless breakthroughs betray trust. They throw dimes in a wishing well, which people rapidly start to expect will never pay compound interest. Then when one of those people is elected to parliament or Congress, or starts to cut the budget for the National Science Foundation, or declares that all research should be in the national interest, whatever that is, I wonder how much we reap what we have sown. And I think that that's an incredibly important point. Um, and it actually brings up something that's happened this week, in fact. Um, it's not quite the same thing, but... Uh, one of my least favorite senators uh, is on the warpath again, trying to basically uh, interrogate people at the National Science Foundation under the guise of trying to prevent money from being wasted by um, other, by foreign nationals. But it's just basically a way for him to try and see what people are doing at the National Science Foundation, because of course, people like him don't believe in basic science research when it comes right down to it. They only believe in things that, you know, the kind of research that should be in the national interest, all caps. And it's just really frustrating. And uh, so yeah, and it just means that people have to take time to look at these things and not be doing their actual jobs. And so it's very frustrating that we have to deal with these kinds of people who don't understand science and don't understand how, um, you know, these things happen. And, you know, even if some foreign influence is happening, usually that is just collaborations. And it's very frustrating um, to have to deal with this sort of thing. And it's just really frustrating in general how politicized uh, science has become right now. Um, I was reading another article about how the FDA now requires all of its scientists to issue a, um, a disclaimer uh, on their research that basically says that uh, this isn't official uh, FDA, um, or USDA, I'm sorry, USDA, that this isn't official USDA policy and that, you know, it can't be used as anything having to do with official USDA, USDA policy, except these are actually already peer reviewed articles. And so they're having to put these disclaimers into peer reviewed journals where their research has been done and has been reviewed, and therefore is by scientific consensus, considered to be, you know, good science, but they're having to put these disclaimers on, because the USDA has been politicized. And so anything that gives that sort of thing, any kind of uh, hold, any kind of examples, it just, it's not good and we shouldn't be doing it because basic science research is so important and it is constantly under attack by people who do not understand the concept that not all science, science has to 
immediately lead to some kind of, uh, you know, result that is either, you know, life saving or that will lead to some sort of widget or MacGuffin that will, you know, make a million dollars. Science is important just for its own right. And we should care about it and we should contribute to it for its own sake. And given the, you know, amazing amount of things that we waste, amazing amount of monies that we waste on corporate welfare and the military industrial complex, it is disgusting to have to basically beg for scraps in order to have people be able to do basic science research. And so it's very frustrating when the media basically continues to do this sort of thing and it erodes the trust of science in scientists. It erodes people's trust and it is really frustrating. And so, um, you know, I think this is actually a really important thing to do. And, um, you know, I think that we should be really, 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 really concerned about attacks on uh, funding to basic science and just the idea of basic science. Um, it's very important. And just as a note, this is not an attack on researchers doing that basic science on mouse or other animal models. That is very important science. But it, what it is, is a plea for better reporting on the fascinating and amazing work that these people are doing, which might someday lead to a human drug or other outcome or not. But it still enriches the body of scientific knowledge we rely on that may someday lead to some sort of cure or treatment, or that is just fascinating for its own sake. All right, <laughs> let's move on now and uh, talk about something that's more uh, of a science discovery rather than just a philosophical, uh, me philosophically waxing about um, <laughs> the the state of science uh, research and all of that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's just very, nothing good lies that way. So let's talk about actual science. <laughs> so. My first uh, story tonight is that researchers have discovered evidence of the earliest chemistry in the universe. And so the team used measurements taken from a telescope aboard a modified Boeing 747. They were looking for traces of helium hydride ions, which is a helium atom bonded to a hydrogen atom. And so after the Big Bang, when the universe began to cool, atoms began to form. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, etc. Um, you know, the very top of the periodic table. The further you go down in the periodic table, uh, the longer it took for those atoms to actually start to be um, formed because most of them come from um, having been fused inside of the cores of stars. And so, but these light elements, hydrogen, helium, lithium, um, they actually started to form uh, once the uh, radiation cooled enough for anything to actually form. And so once the universe reached the temperature of a few thousand degrees, the atoms began to bond. 
And so this allowed basically, eventually, for all of the matter in the universe to be created. Um, you know, you have atoms and they bond and they become molecules and then molecules become matter. And then uh, we have the universe that we know today. But until now, we had never been able to find actual evidence of helium hydride ions in space. Now, of course, one of the things to think about is that helium is actually generally non-reactive, which means it doesn't easily pair up with other molecules. And so it only really happened um, initially in this first part of uh, when the universe was created, but it, it can also, again, happen in um, sort of in the, um, you know, star nebulas and um in the, in the center of stars, I should say. And so, um, thanks to the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA, we now have evidence that these molecules are indeed out there. This was predicted 30 to 40 years ago by early chemical models, the study's first author, Rolf Gustin, from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy noted. Now, it might seem odd that, again, we hadn't found such a basic molecule, but until recently, the technology didn't exist because the signature wavelengths of light released by these molecules are actually absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. So you had to get a telescope far enough outside of the atmosphere in order to do that. And so many scientists had actually given up on finding it. Uh, it was first synthesized in 1925 on Earth. And in the 70s, it was theorized uh, that planetary nebulae might have been forming these ions today. And so the ions detected aren't, again, those created by the Big Bang necessarily, um, but they are a signature that the theory was right. And so now with the SOFIA telescope, which is a collaboration between NASA and the German Aerospace Center, they were able to find that signature. And so SOFIA was outfitted with an instrument called the German Receiver for Astronomy at Tetrahertz Frequencies, or GREAT. <laughs> um, you have to love uh, the um, names that... Uh, NASA and other uh, space agencies come up with for their, um, for all of their different telescopes and uh, instruments, because I think they work really, someone works really hard on them <laughs> to come up with uh, good abbreviations. Uh, and so this uh, instrument was able to be used because uh, the, um, airplane flies at 38,000 to 45,000 feet, which is above 99% of the infrared absorbing parts of the atmosphere. So you can actually see <laughs> those signatures because they're not being absorbed. And so they looked at the planetary nebula NGC 7027 during three flights in May of 2016. And after they analyzed the data, they were able to detect the presence of helium hydride molecules from the nebula. Now, this is actually a really big result for astrophysics. I would say this is probably the most important discovery yet to yet by the SOFIA Observatory, said Mike Barlow, professor at the University College London, uh, who was not involved with the research. 
And so basically what this does is it helps to solidify the fundamental ideas of how chemistry began. And so, you know, it's really a big deal that if they didn't find any signature of the uh, molecules, they would have kind of had to go back to the drawing board in a really fundamental way. So this is definitely one of those cases where uh, we're glad that the result was positive and it's not that we have to go back to the uh, drawing board because otherwise there'd be a lot that would have to be done. And I'm sure some people would enjoy that, but some people would be very frustrated and confused. Um, and so that is very exciting. And, uh, you know, Sophia is by no, no, uh, no, um, chance the only telescope out there. And so another telescope is actually celebrating a rather exciting milestone. The Hubble telescope turned 29 this week, and it released an amazing picture of the Southern Crab Nebula. Now, just to avoid confusion, this is a slightly more humble nebula than the more well-known Crab Nebula uh, that is a supernova remnant in the constellation Taurus. So this is actually a slightly different um, nebula. It's very cool looking nonetheless. Um, and so it has those sort of classic, uh, you know, the center, and then there are these two uh, um crescents that come out from the front and sort of the back, quote unquote, uh, of the nebula. And so um, I was just thinking about it when I was reading about this. I don't know if you remember when the Hubble first launched, um, but one of the things that happened then was that it was actually initially crippled by an incorrectly ground mirror um, or a mirror that had some kind of defect. I was actually fairly young at the time, but I remember being awed at the ability of this telescope to be repaired by astronauts. Um, and it was just one of the first times that I really sort of understood how, frankly, amazing NASA technology is. Um, and, you know, we, again, we sometimes take this sort of stuff for granted. Um, but, you know, NASA has done amazing work over the years. And so the mirror was fixed during a servicing mission in December of 1993. And ever since then, the telescope has been sending back amazing pictures of the universe. The Hubble has also had the ability to be upgraded. And so four other missions have gone to either upgrade or replace parts of the telescope. So even though uh, many are anticipating the eventful uh, eventual, I should say, launch of the James Webb Telescope, Hubble is still giving us amazing and important images of the universe around us. And so this year's anniversary image shows the hourglass-shaped structure of the nebula. And so um, it was actually created by the interaction between a pair of stars in the center. Now, the stars are uneven, a red giant and a white dwarf. The red dwarf, um, I'm sorry, the red giant is shedding its outer layers and will actually someday become a white dwarf itself. And so some of that material is actually attracted by the white dwarf, which builds up a layer and then casts off the material. Um, and so it actually then casts it off into the surrounding space in the same kind of uh, crescent shape because of the different um, gravitational pulls, it creates this illusion of kind of an hourglass figure or a crab. Now, observations of the nebula had been conducted previously. It was first described in 1967 and was first absor 
and at the time, they thought it was basically just a star um, because they didn't have good enough telescopes at the time. It was first observed to be more than an ordinary star in 1989, when a fuzzy image of the crab-like structure was seen by the European Southern Observatory's La Silla Observatory. But it wasn't until Hubble's images of the nebula um, its initial images of the nebula, that we realized that there were two stars at the center that are performing sort of this, you know, dance of, uh, you know, shedding their outer um, layers and creating this amazing uh, hourglass figure. And, um, you know, it's actually kind of nice that Hubble is celebrating its anniversary. And this is basically the 20th anniversary portrait uh, of this fascinating nebula. So that is very cool. And of course, we would have never gotten such amazing pictures without the hard work of astronauts. And so uh, Christina Cook, um, I think I was pronouncing her name uh, co last week because it's K-O-C-H, but apparently she pronounces it Cook. So I uh, apologize for having uh, said it wrong last week. But um, she was one of the astronauts who was supposed to be part of the all-female spacewalk, uh, which I'm still angry about, but we're, we're just going to push on. Uh, she has been told that she'll be staying on the International Space Station for another 10 months, which means that she will be in space for 328 days, which will be a new record for the longest space flight for a woman. It feels awesome, said Cook in a video released by NASA. I have known that this was a possibility for a long time, and it's truly a dream come true to know that I can continue to work on the program that I have valued so highly my whole life. To be able to contribute to that and give my best every day to that for as long as possible is a true honor and a dream come true, she said. So that is pretty exciting. Um, she seems like a very cool astronaut, and um, I'm very excited for her. And uh, so like Scott Kelly, uh, her prolonged stay will be used to study how working in space affects the human body. And so uh, things like microgravity, radiation, confinement, and excess carbon dioxide all affect astronauts aboard the space station. And so, in fact, the last results of the study that looked at how Scott Kelly and his brother Mark, uh, which was released recently, and so it showed that there were a fair amount of short-term changes, but that the majority of changes have faded as he has readjusted to being on Earth. Given that the majority of the biological and human health variables remained stable or returned to baseline, these data suggest that human health can be mostly sustained over this duration of spaceflight, said NASA in a statement. Now, there was a small amount of cognitive decline that was noticeable even after six months, but honestly, it remains to be seen if this will persist and if there was a cause and effect reaction or if it was due, frankly, to the stress of readjusting to the earth and the stress of a press junket and other forms of wear and tear on the body and mind that he's had to endure. Um, and so it will actually be interesting to see how Christina Cook fares on her return. 
Okay, so it is time to take a break. So let's do some PSAs and show promos. And then we're going to come back and talk about electricity from snow. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out. Look out! <gasps> oh, my God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. 
Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. What did they just say? If you often find yourself asking that, you may benefit from the new audio-enhancing technology available at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Designed to work with or without a hearing aid, the new and improved audio-visual systems in our meeting rooms, along with countertop loop systems at our service desks, are some of the new technology the library now has. With federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. You'll now find hearing the librarian and guest lecturers a whole lot easier. Call 413-587-1017 or email info at ForbesLibrary.org to find out more. And we are back. All right, so we are going to talk about creating electricity from snow. Now, I know that we're moving into spring, and I'm very excited about that. Um, I actually have a couple of tulips coming up in front of my house. Uh, I think I need to uh, probably dig them up and replant them uh, at this point because uh, I only got a few this year. But, um, you know, I am very into spring, but this is really cool. Um, and it has the potential to make snow into a way to generate energy, which I just think is amazing. Um, and so... Uh, Basically, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I don't like about winter uh, is that I am often getting electric shocks. Um, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that, including the fact that it's a lot drier generally in the uh, winter, and that actually uh, makes it easier to get electric shocks because um, there's a, I don't, I can't tell you offhand and I don't want to mess it up, but I think there's something about how, um, you know, air that has more water vapor in it is less likely to uh, kind of uh, end up leading to electric shocks. Um, but anyways, so that's pretty much what the researchers are trying to harness. So they've used the fact that snow is positively charged and gives up electrons to devise a novel way of generating electricity. They've created a device called the snow-based Triboelectric Nano Generator, or Snow Tang. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, static electricity occurs from the interaction of one material that captures electrons and another that gives up electrons, said Richard Kaner, senior author and a distinguished professor of chemistry and biochemistry and of materials science and engineering and a member of the California Nano Systems Institute at UCLA. Um, he, he's kind of a big deal, apparently. <laughs> you separate the charges and create electricity out of essentially nothing. And so the team used silicone, which is a synthetic material that is negatively charged. And so when falling snow reaches the silicone, it produces a charge that the device captures, producing electricity. Snow is already charged, so we thought, 
why not bring another material with the opposite charge and extract the charge to create electricity, said co-author uh, Maher El-Khadi, a UCLA postdoctoral researcher in of chemistry and biochemistry. While snow likes to give up electrons, the performance of the device depends on the efficiency of the other material at extracting these electrons, he added. After testing a large number of materials, including aluminum foils and Teflon, we found that silicone produces more charge than any other material. Now, one of the hopes is that the material could be added to solar panels, which would then be able to generate electricity even when covered in snow. The device could also actually be used to detect the movements of athletes in winter sports, such as cross-country skiing, and could aid in improving athletes' performance. Um, and so it can measure sort of movements uh, when actually, uh, you know, it's creating its own electricity to then do things like track movements. So it's very cool. And so the team used 3D printing to design the device, which, given the high availability of silicone, should be relatively cheap to produce. So it consists basically of a uh, simple, simply of a layer of silicone and an electrode to capture the charge. Uh, and so uh, Kaner and his laboratory are actually known for numerous devices, uh, including a membrane that separates oil from water and cleans up debris left by fracking. Um, and so uh, they have so they're, you know, they're they're making all of these really incredible things. And so this is another kind of really fascinating uh, device that they've created. They actually also published work this year on their design for the first fire retardant, self-extinguishing motion sensor and power generator that could be embedded in shoes or clothes worn by firefighters or others, you know, exposed to fire uh, as part of their job or, um, you know, things like that. And so, yeah, pretty cool. Um, and so again, you know, sometimes science does lead to actually really cool, actual things that can aid us in our everyday lives or, uh, you know, can produce energy from snow. I'm still blown away by that. Uh, you know, it might not become some sort of giant, uh, you know, electricity creation, um, you know, we not we might not be powering our homes on snow anytime soon, but I just love the idea of taking something that is basically for most people just a pain in the butt to have to deal with, uh, unless you're an avid uh, skier of some sort or other, you know, winter sports enthusiast, uh, or you know, you're someone who uh, makes their living doing plowing. <laughs> um, for most of us, it's just kind of you know, it's initially pretty and then mostly just annoying. And to be able to take that and create electricity from it is just, it totally blows my mind. And I think it's amazing. And so, yeah. And one of the things that they used is 3D printing, uh, which continues to be a boon for all sorts of industries and uh, has been making all sorts of items more accessible and affordable. Um, you know, despite some bumps with things like... Uh, things that people can 3D print that we might not want them to be able to do that. But uh, 
I'm hoping that at some point we'll figure that out. But researchers are using them in very cool ways. So they are continuing to push the boundaries of materials that can be used in 3D printing. So it's not just plastics or silicone, uh, but also metals and glass uh, amongst a host of other materials. And so uh, researchers have now successfully 3D printed uh, calcinogenied glass. And so this is used to make optical components that operate at mid-infrared wavelengths. And so this could lead to the manufacture of complex glass components and optical fibers that could be incorporated into low-cost sensors, telecommunication components, and biomedical devices. And so uh, Patrick La Rochelle and his colleagues from the Centre d'Optique Phototonique at Laser, uh, or COPL, at Université Laval in Canada, um, they have modified an existing 3D printer for glass extrusion and used a method called fused deposition modeling, in which a plastic filament is melted and then extruded layer by layer to create detailed 3D objects. 3D printing of optical materials will pave the way for a new era of designing and combining materials to produce the photonic components and fibers of the future, said Yannick Ledemi, a member of the research team. This new method could potentially result in a breakthrough for efficient manufacturing of infrared optical components at a low cost. Because um, calcinogenide glass softens at a relatively low temperature, the team could increase the maximum extruding, temp extruding temperature of a commercial printer from around 260 degrees Celsius to 330 degrees Celsius to achieve the glass extrusion. Our approach is very well suited for soft calcogenide glass. <laughs> But alternate approaches are also being explored to print other types of glass, said Ledemi. This could allow fabrication of components made of multiple materials. Glass could also be combined with polymers with specialized electroconductive or optical properties to produce multifunctional 3D printed devices. And so the calcogenide uh, based components could be used to create sensors that detect infrared chemical signatures of molecules for uses in things like pollution monitoring and biomedical devices, among a whole host of other things. And of course, right now, the research is in the early stages. Uh, as we talked about before, uh, it's not just about, uh, say, in mice. Um, it's also about talking when you have something that's been created in a lab that is any kind of thing, have something in a lab isn't necessarily going to be on your store shelves anytime soon. But, you know, hopefully sometime soon. And so, again, right now the research is in early stages, but the ability to use 3D printing in so many different ways is really it's really helping to revolutionize our world, uh, especially because it allows access to cheaper and more convenient components in many areas. And so one of the big things um, about 3D printing that I really like is that, um, you know, it gives people the ability to test things out. And I think that one of the things that we really should be working on 
is getting 3D printers into places where young people can use them. Um, because I think that that's going to be so important for them to be able to use these, uh, items and to really, um, you know, try and figure out how to create interesting and new things. You know, you and I probably used Legos as a kid. Um, I think that the next generation should be, you know, using uh, <laughs> using uh, CAD and creating 3D printed uh, toys for themselves using uh, computer-aided design. Um, and I think that that would be really cool. Um, though I have to say, you know, obviously, I also believe that, you know, kids should be out playing in nature and doing all those sorts of things. I think that you do have to strike a balance, but I definitely think that children should be in cute, should be encouraged to embrace uh, technology and embrace uh, the newest things that are coming out because, you know, especially kids often have really good ideas about things that we tend to, uh, you know, dismiss, but sometimes they're onto something. And so I think that programs that get this sort of technology to kids is also a really great thing uh, that we should all be encouraging. Um, but again, I also think that they should not have gotten rid of, say, for instance, uh, teaching cursive. And so I found that out the other day um, that uh, there was a woman uh, that works at the um, where I work and um, in another office. I hadn't met her before and she has an 11 year old. The only reason the 11, her son knows how to read cursive is because she taught him because she only writes in cursive. Um, and so that as someone who has studied history, especially, um, that makes me very sad because, um, you know, it's, it's already hard for people who do write in cursive today to read older cursive and to read older handwriting. And for kids who are now only learning how to type and to maybe block print um, letters, that to me just is not the best idea. Um, I have to say, I'm a little bit concerned about that. I think that we should definitely be teaching that. And again, that comes down to the fact that we don't really value education in this country in a fundamental way. Um, and I could, I could talk about that for forever. Um, but let's talk about <laughs> the last story I have tonight instead of going off on a tangent about how our educational system is broken. And it isn't technically broken because it's never been right to begin with. But anyways, <laughs> um, Hem. Let's switch gears now and talk about something that many of us enjoy and that has been a staple of human civilization for, well, pretty much as long as civilization has existed. It's kind of one of the fundamental things about civilization. So let's talk about beer, specifically a beer called Chica, which the ancient Wari people of Peru brewed. So the Wari had an empire that stretched for the equivalent of the eastern seaboard from New York City to Jacksonville, Florida. So a big area. Um, their empire was huge and it held sway for 500 years. That's a long time. That's way longer than the 
the, that America has been around. Um, and so it lasted between 600 and 1100 CE. And at that point, it didn't so much collapse as it was actually supplanted by the Inca Empire, which kind of evolved out of it. And so, yeah, this, this was a pretty robust civilization. Uh, they, they apparently had some really good things going on. And so researchers want to know how they did that. Um, and so new research suggests that one of the keys to the longtime survival of the Waris Empire was a steady supply of beer. This study helps us understand how beer fed the creation of complex political organizations, said Ryan Williams, an associate curator and head of anthropology at the Field Museum in Chicago, and the lead author of the new study, which is published in the journal Sustainability. We were able to apply new technologies to capture information about how ancient beer was produced and what it meant to societies in the past. And so almost 20 years ago, Williams, along with Donna Nash of the Field Museum and the University of North Carolina Greensboro and their team, discovered an ancient Wari brewery in Cerro Baú in the mountains of southern Peru. It was like a microbrewery in some respects. It was a production house, but the brew houses and taverns would have been right next door, explained Williams. The beer produced, a light, sour beverage called chica, was only drinkable for around a week, and so it couldn't be shipped from the site to other places in the uh, community. And so instead, people would have come to the site in order to experience the drink. And so the Wari would have festivals where people would come to Sarobau to partake of the brew. And so these were extremely important ceremonies. They would involve between one and 200 political elites drinking chica from three foot tall ceramic vessels, uh, which were decorated to look like wari gods and leaders. People would have come into this site in these festive moments in order to recreate and reaffirm their affiliations with these Wari lords and maybe bring tribute and pledge loyalty to the Wari state, said Williams. And so in order to really get an idea of the beer, the team analyzed pieces of ceramic beer vessels from the area. The cool thing about this study is that we're getting down to the atomic level. We're counting atoms in the pores of the ceramics or trying to reconstruct and count the masses of molecules that were in the original drink from a thousand years ago that got embedded into the empty spaces between grains of clay in the ceramic vessels. And that's what's telling us the new information about what the beer was made of and where the ceramic vessels were produced, said Williams. It's really new information at the molecular level that is giving archaeologists this new insight into the past. And so again, so many cool new tools have come into archaeology in the past, you know, 10, 20 years that we're constantly finding new things. Um, you know, since they first discovered this place, we've gotten so many new tools.
And one of those included a test where a laser is used to remove a tiny bit of a shard and then vaporizes it by heating it to the temperature of the surface of the sun in order to analyze the molecular signature. Very cool. (laughs) And so, of course, after that, they did what any self-respecting archaeologist would do. They teamed up with Peruvian brewers to recreate the beer. (laughs) Making chica is a complicated process that requires experience and expertise. The experiments taught us a lot about what making chica would look like in the ruins of a building and how much labor and time went into the process, says Nash, who led the brewing recreation. And uh, the Field Museum actually partnered with a local brewery in Chicago to make a commercially available pink ale infused with pepperberries called Wari Ale. Uh, But unfortunately, it seemed to have only been available in Chicago, um, which makes me very sad because I would love to try it. And so what the team found were two major things. First, that the clay the vessels were made from was local to the area, and that the beer was made using the aforementioned pepperberries, which, extremely importantly, grew even during drought conditions. So this meant that if trade deteriorated or was delayed, they didn't have to worry about materials to make the clay pots. And if other crops like maize failed, there would still be beer. And so they had an amazing product that was basically uh, foolproof. And so the researchers think that this may have been the cement that held together the vast empire, which consisted of, again, many different groups of people in a huge area with, you know, this huge empire all staying under one overarching rule, one overarching kind of civilization. We think these institutions of brewing and then serving the beer really formed a unity among these populations. It kept people together, said Williams. And the team said that there is importance to this work even beyond learning about a fascinating ancient people. Understanding how people came together in the past, especially among such diversity, can help inform how we might do a better job of the same thing in the future. So for instance, they point to problems like Brexit as failures of our current system's ability to unite disparate peoples and keep them united. So maybe we can learn a thing or two from the ancient worry and their uh, foolproof beer. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for joining me as always. And please do stay tuned for uh, civil politics if you can uh, handle it. Um, I bet they will be talking about the Mueller report. So if you're interested in that, uh, please do stay tuned. They will have a special guest tonight. Uh, Stefan Ward Wheaton will be joining them um, as a guest. So if you've missed Stefan, uh, please do stay tuned and you will get to uh, hear him. So have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.